Shalom Aleichem, Shalom everyone. I hope you can hear me. And if not, let me know. We'll try to adjust everything. So let's sit for uh, 50 minutes, maybe 55, and uh, and learn a little Torah. Uh, that's what we do together here. And uh, we've been teaching this class, and we just finished, actually, in the last uh, times we were together, uh, the section uh, from Rabbi Yehuda Lev Ashlag, the Baal HaSulam, the Master of the Ladder, his uh, introduction to the Zohar. Now, what's amazing about that is, uh, <laughs> basically, he didn't even mention much about the Zohar in uh, in, in that whole uh, series of lectures uh, that he taught to us. But uh, And then we added a whole lot of other things into it also. However, in tonight we're going to uh, begin, really, the first section in his introduction to the study of the Ten Sefirot. And just like uh, in the introduction to the Zohar, he's not going to really talk too much. He will a little bit, but he won't talk a whole lot about the Ten Sefirot. So what in the world is going on here? Well, basically, he is, uh, he is just telling us and showing to us that before we can even begin to, uh, for instance, uh, to study the Zohar, we have to understand some very basic things, and uh, hopefully he taught that to us uh, in, in that section. For instance, number one, that uh, Kabbalah is actually really just a language, the language of the branches, and how something that we use in the physical world here is really just representative of the root of that thing that's in the spiritual realms. And uh, he went through all of that, showed us what, separ what actually separates us from Hashem, us from God, meaning the will to receive, and how that will to receive was, just to make a synopsis, how that will to receive was changed, if you will, it was transformed in the garden by the bite of the snake into a will to receive for ourself alone. In other words, total, complete self-centeredness, what's in it for me concerning everything that we decide, everything that we touch in life, and, uh, I mean, just everything. It totally permeates everything, and it really, part of our task here, part of our mission is the refinement of that will to receive, uh, and the only way we can do that is through the Torah and the mitzvot, through the commandments, uh, to where it begins to refine everything that we think and everything that we say and everything that we do to move away from this self-centered actions, this self-centered motivation. And uh, he talked a whole lot to us about all of this, and this is a basic understanding of something that someone should have even what he's trying to tell us, even before they can even begin to go to such a holy work uh, like the Zohar, written entirely in the language of the branches. And that's a danger sometimes of people who are not qualified, who are both teaching Kabbalah or studying Kabbalah, is if they're not qualified, and just even in the understanding of this, of this basic thing about the will to receive for oneself alone, and how the language of the branches, what those what those correspondences are, then uh, they can uh, tend to uh, mess everything up and, and get in a wrong direction. Uh, so he is trying to give us a real firm foundation for any kind of study like that. But at the same time, he is also trying and attempting uh, his utmost to begin to change the way we think. Where we change the way we think from a totally self-centered perspective where we are the center of the universe into an other people and into a God-centered way of thinking, into a Torah way of thinking, really and truly. And then the last time we were together, we concluded with that, with an amazing look, really, at an amazing statement that, that the Baal HaSulam, uh, Rabbi Yehudun Lev tells us 
where he's talking to us about the level of the soul and whether it's a Jewish soul or whether it's a non-Jewish soul. It has a nation's part of the soul and it has an Israel or a Yashar El, that part that goes straight to God. It has an Israel part of the soul. And that to me is the key to understanding so much of the other teaching of the sages talking about the world to come and talking about what we are what we are doing right now and what we are trying to accomplish during our days on this earth when our soul is in this body. So with all of that, let's start his introduction to the Ten Spherot. We'll go as far as we can, and uh, we'll just see what happens. Now, the very first thing Rabbi Ashlag picks up in his study of the Ten Spherot is something that really, really bothered him in his generation. I remember, I believe he died in 1956. Uh, he, and by the way, just to remind ourselves about a few things about him, and it's an amazing thing when we begin to really read his writings uh, of what he says. He suffered poverty, extreme poverty, all of his life, and uh, he did not have an easy time of things. Uh, he was constantly beset by all kinds of things, and uh, and and one of the things was uh, actually the opposition of other rabbis in that he made the study of Kabbalah available to people, and uh, it really bothered them. Most of the people who actually opposed him didn't know anything about the hidden wisdom of the Torah or the inner dimension of the Torah. And I truthfully can say, if it had not been for the, the, the groundbreaking work that Rabbi Ashlag did in his life, even though I think he was very much unappreciated in his day, that we wouldn't be seeing, we wouldn't be seeing the work that's being done today. We wouldn't see the level of Torah study that we have today. We certainly, I don't think, would see anything like a B'nai Noach movement or any of those things, to, to be honest with you. Oh, we may see them, but I mean, what I'm trying to say is he was a, he was a very important part of the of the work that God was doing at that time that comes over into our generation. And uh, so I'm very, very thankful for him. Uh, anyway, he begins his study with a bunch of questions or a bunch of objections that people have about uh, why anyone would even want to study this area. Now, you know, the deal is, is, is especially for, for uh, non-Jewish peoples, uh, there, there are some problems sometimes in that we should, uh, that, that, that uh, how do I want to put this and sound correctly? Well, we can just say it this way. In, in the study of Jewish halakha, now that doesn't mean I don't think that you can't study Jewish halakha, but it may or may not apply to you, and it may just be confusing to you, or it may make you think, oh, you know, those crazy Jews, gosh, they they uh, they uh, tear tear the toilet paper before the Shabbat, you know, what what a crazy thing. And so he moves. What makes his what makes Rabbi Ashlag's Torah, his teaching of Torah, so wonderful is that he moves it from the specific halakhic attributes that applied only to Jewish people, and he moves it to the level of a soul, of a human being, of a ben Adam, of, a, of not just a, a ben Noach, but a ben Adam, a, a real human being. And that applies to all of us, whether Jewish or non-Jewish, and that, that's so very, very important uh, of what he is doing here. Anyway, so he went through the same objections that we hear today, and uh, you know, in some classes that I have, now in this internet class, I've just been very, very bold, and, and not only do I say it, but I also write it on the screen, Kabbalah. But you know, in some classes I have, I almost have to speak like in a code. Uh, you know, we we say the K word, you know, so that people will know what those people who know will know what I'm talking about. 
Because if I was to come out and say Kabbalah, you know, half the people would get up and leave the class because uh, someone has told them that that's nonsense. Someone has told them, no, that that's uh, uh, occultic or any of those things. Well, anybody who has really studied anything of this wisdom, the inner dimension of the Torah, knows that that's so far from the truth. But the same kind of objections, the same kind of things came along also in Rabbi Ashlag's day. So with no further ado, let's begin. Oh, one thing I do need to tell you is he is going to take us down, begin to take us down a path now. In fact, much of what he is going to talk about is going to be to answer these objections and, and to begin to show us that, um, that the sages were actually encouraging us to study this level of the sold level, the secret level of the Torah. They were encouraging us to do it without saying it like using the word Kabbalah. But he's going to begin to show us that. Now, it can actually, the early part of this study can actually be a little bit discouraging. You say, oh my goodness, there's no way I can do that. There's absolutely no way I can even begin to accomplish that. Don't fret. And don't give up hope. <laughs> he, is, he is actually telling us the path that we have to take, that a person must take, if they want to be the concept of a tzaddik, a tzaddik, a righteous one, if you will, even though that word in English doesn't even begin to tell us uh, what the Hebrew word tzaddik means. And he's going to talk about this. And will it be for all of us? No. But to him, that's no excuse that we should not be working on it, that we should not be... Oh, Toda Rabbah, I just, I just saw the, the comment, Toda. Uh, but that doesn't give us an excuse that we should not be walking this path, if you will, the way of the Torah. But anyway, what I'm going to tell you is because I'm not sure how far we'll get because I like to carry on, you know, and, and everything, so I eat up, eat up our valuable time. Uh, but don't get discouraged because he is going to show us that we can do it. He is going to show us that the way is available. He is, going to, he is going to prove to us that it can be done. So first we have this concept, you know, and I'll, I'll tell you this just in advance. We have this concept that when we talked, we've already talked about it some before, that the earlier generations, because their souls were so much larger, you know, and yet they are incomplete without us, even though our souls are smaller, but the earlier generations were on a much higher spiritual level than we were. And the things that, were, that they could do and that they could do easily are not so easy for us today. But that doesn't mean that it still can't be done. Okay, all right. With all that in mind, if I haven't completely confused you yet, let me begin the introduction to the study of the Ten Sefirot by Rabbi Yehudu Lev Ashlag. May the memory of this tzaddik be for a blessing. He says at the very beginning of this discourse, he's, and remember when he is writing, we actually don't see the, the exact same attitudes today as we did in his generation of the you know, 30s and 40s and 50s. So he says, at the beginning of this discourse, I discover a great need within myself, he says, to shatter an iron curtain which separates us from the wisdom of the Kabbalah since the time of the destruction of the temple right up to our own generation. And this barrier has burdened us, he says, to a very serious degree. means he's very concerned about it. It was on his mind all the time. And it even awakens, he says, the fear that the Kabbalah might even be forgot, forgotten in Israel. God forbid. When I begin to advise someone, he says, concerning the study of this subject, often their first question is, but why do I need to know 
the names of angels or how many angels there are in heaven because surely I can keep can't I keep the whole Torah, the whole of the Torah in all of its fullest details without this type of knowledge that's one question second question is didn't the sages already decide that before studying Kabbalah this is one that I hear all the time that a person must first fill his belly with the Talmud with the Mishnah with the Gemara and with the Halakha and who could possibly fool himself into thinking that he has already completed the entire revealed Torah, and that is the Halakha, that's the revealed Torah, and all that he lacks is the concealed Torah, or the Kabbalah. Thirdly, he says, the person is often afraid, and I also run into this, that he or she may go off the path as a consequence of this study. In fact, I, I hear that a lot, you know, uh, uh, from, from a lot of people. Oh, that person was okay until they came to your class and they started studying this stuff. And that made them go off the path. You know, and I think to myself, it absolutely did not make them go off the path. It only began to change the way they thought. It changed the way they think and their worldview. And when that happened, then they are no longer... It's, it's almost impossible to even have a compatible conversation with someone sometimes. If they are thinking, you know, that that Hashem created everything and uh, and he created everything good and uh, and this one big angel you know who was almost as powerful as God himself decided to make a rebellion against God and now everything has been in rebellion against him uh from that time and uh so we have this evil god and then we have the good god and they are making a war all the time and some days one of them wins and some days the other one wins and oh my goodness oh my goodness how unbelievable because Hashem is really God. He really is God. Nothing can rebel against Him unless He allows it, unless it's even His will. Nothing can oppose Him. He, <laughs> he forms light and creates darkness. That's what Isaiah 45 says. It even says He creates evil, which is the, the, to, to understand that by withholding His light, by concealing Himself, Evil comes into existence, but it's only as his servant. And this big angel is only his servant. And this big angel does his job. And that the real Satan that we have, the real opponent to us, the real adversary is what? It's our Yetzir Hara. It's our inc evil inclination. Or as Rabbi Ashlag would put it, it's our will to receive for ourselves alone. That's the real enemy. And that's the enemy that is a liar. And that's the enemy that is a murderer because his job is to kill you. So that, so it's an entirely different way of thinking. And it's almost impossible to have, to have a, a deep conversation with somebody who is thinking in those kind of terms. Anyway, but it has happened in the past, Rabbi Ashlag tells us. Now the one that I can think of right off the top of my head was the false messiah, uh, Shabbatai Tzvi, who used Kabbalistic study but he perverted it, okay, and so, but, but the experience with him has uh, produced a backlash against the wisdom of the Kabbalah. Anyway, thirdly, he says, the person is afraid that he or she may go off the path as a consequence of this study, and it has happened, like in the case of Shabbatai Tzvi, that there have been cases in the past where people strayed from the Torah, or from the way of the Torah, as a consequence of st studying Kabbalah. But if they did that, they did it without a real genuine teacher and, and uh, a rabbi instructing them. 
Therefore, the person says, why in the world should I risk such a thing? Why should I risk it? Why should I be so foolish as to place myself in danger for no good reason? Fourthly, he says, even those who love this level of learning, they only permit it to very saintly people who serve God, and not everyone wants to take it up may do so. They, in other words, there's restrictions placed. But I'm going to tell you, Rabbi Ashlag is going to remove every restriction. This stuff is for everybody. And he says, but the fifth objection that the person may raise is the main one. He says, there is a halakhic principle that states, where there is a case of doubt, we look at the general common practice. And so a person will tell me, when I look at the people who practice Torah in this generation, I see that they have all unanimously abandoned the study of this hidden wisdom. And they even counsel those who ask them that without any doubt, it's better to spend one's time studying a page of the Talmud than to occupy oneself with Kabbalah. So these were the objections Rabbi Ashlag faced. Those are the same objections that we still face today. But then Rabbi Ashlag says, however, if we consider only one very famous question, he says, I am sure that all of these other questions and doubts will vanish over the horizon and they will disappear as if they had never been. And the burning question, he says, which is asked of every inhabitant of this world is this. What is the point of our lives? Why do we live these number of years which cost us so dearly? We go through so much pain and suffering in order to complete them until they are ended. And who can really say that he enjoys his life? Or even more pointedly, he says, is there anyone who benefits from my life? Am I benefiting anyone? And the truth is, he says, that all of the philosophers... They have even left off pondering <laughs> this question. He says, and it's certainly the case that in our, gener that in our generation, in Rabbi Ashlag's generation, no one even wants to consider this question. No one even wants to look at it. Nevertheless, the essence of this question, Rabbi Ashlag says, still stands in all of its force and in all of its bitterness. And sometimes, he says, it comes upon us unawares and it bores into our brain, casting us down to the very dust in other words, what is the point of our lives? Until we hit, he said, upon the well-known strategy. Now look at what he's saying here. Because I've done this, and I'm sure if you think about it, you've also done it. This well-known strategy that Rabbi Ashlag says, and that is of allowing ourselves to be swept up thoughtlessly into the stream of life, just as we did the day before, and the day before that, and the day before that. In other words, to just keep riding the wave, don't ask any questions. Just get through this day. Keep riding the wave, you know, whatever, no matter what. So he is telling us, he is going to tell us that the only way that we can find out what is the point of our lives is to study this inner wisdom, this inner dimension of the Torah. Now, he's going to begin to take us on a journey. Once again, I tell you, even though it may begin to sound like it's impossible, don't despair. We are going to stick with Rabbi Ashlag. And it's good. It's, in one way, it's not good that we're studying it this way because just in an hour's framework, uh, he may just be beginning to introduce the subject and he won't get us until uh, you know to the good meat part of it until the next time we're together. But some of this we need to, we need to take and we need to hold it for a while and digest it. And work it over in our brains. Okay, so it's just so there are good points and bad points about this this particular method, and it's so vast. There's no way we could do it all at one time anyway. Anyway, 
He says the scripture actually gives us the solution to this riddle. And it does it in Psalm 34 and verse 9, where it says, Taste and see that God is good. Those people, he says, who fulfill the Torah and the mitzvot in the correct way, that's important, in the correct way, are those who taste the true taste of life. And they see and they bear witness to the fact that Hashem is good. And the sages have taught us that God created the worlds in order to benefit his creatures. And it is in the nature of the good to do good. It's in the nature of the good one, and that is God, to do only good. But it is certainly the case, he says, that someone who has not yet tasted the life of fulfillment in Torah and mitzvot can neither understand nor even experience that God is good in the way that the sages taught. In other words, that God's whole intention in creating man was only to give benefit to all of his creations, all of his creatures. Therefore, the best recommendation, he says, for such a person is to begin to practice the Torah and the mitzvot in the correct way. That's what he wants us to begin to see. How do we do it in the correct way? Okay, before he gets us there, he's got a lot of things to talk about. He now moves to, moves to uh, Deuteronomy or Devarim, chapter 30 and verse 15, which where he says, this is what the Torah itself says. See, I have set before you this day, life and good are death and evil. Before the Torah was given, listen to what he gets from this. Before the Torah was given, there was no choice. Only death and evil were present. Wow, now that's a different way to look at it. Only death and evil were present, he, present. And he says, and this fits in with the remark of our sages, that wicked people within their lifetimes are called dead because their death is actually better than their lives. The pain and the suffering that they undergo just in order to survive cost them dearly in comparison with the little amount of pleasure they receive in such a life. Now he's not saying that, you know, all the people from Adam to Moshe that they all went to hell. Don't think that way. That's not what he is saying. He is saying that when the Torah was actually given, and God makes this statement in Devarim 30 and 19, to choose life, I put before you to this day life and good or death and evil, he is talking that this is a new, a new infusion, if you will, of the light of Hashem into this world. And that before that time, there, there wasn't, in a sense, choice, is what he's saying. Because we didn't have the written Torah, and we didn't have the oral Torah. Uh, and, and even though people, of course, knew God, of course they knew Hashem, absolutely. And their souls are so big, and they're on such a much higher spiritual level than we are, because we're, don't, don't get, get, get Rabbi Ashlag wrong here. He's not saying that these people are on a higher spiritual level than Adam, or of Abraham, or Isaac and Jacob. Of course not. Uh, because they they intuitively knew the Torah from Hashem himself. But he is saying that something is happening here. That uh, before the Torah was given, there wasn't any choice. Now, he says, though, we have been privileged to receive Torah and mitzvot, through whose fulfillment we can merit true and happy lives, which give joy to others and to ourselves according to the true sense of the Scripture, Back in Psalm 34, taste and see that Hashem is good. Therefore, the scripture says, the Torah says, 
See, I have set before you this day life and good, which you did not have at all in the world before the giving of the Torah. And the scripture goes on to conclude, And so, choose life, in order that you and your offspring will live. Deuteronomy or Devarim 30 and verse 19. Now, he said, Rabbi Ashlag is so cool, because he says something amazing. We just put it on the screen. He says the language in this in this whole verse appears to be redundant. Redundant. What is going on here? And we know that there is nothing redundant in the Torah, absolutely nothing. But when it appears something is redundant, and this is a law, a hermeneutic law of the oral Torah, when it appears something is redundant, then then something else is going on. And we and this is a note to us that we need to really look at it and figure it out. So the language here seems to be redundant, he says, because obviously, if you choose life, you will live. So what the scripture here is actually referring to, what is it? It's living a life of consciousness through the fulfillment of Torah and mitzvot. Let's stop there for just one second because I need to pound on that nail for just a second. Because if you study with other great rabbis like Rabbi uh, Rabbi Yitzhak Ginsburg or uh, or uh, any of the others who are teaching you know, on this level of uh, learning, you will hear them talk about uh, levels of consciousness. Okay, What in the world does that mean? If we think about it, we can figure it out for just a minute. Before you came to the Torah, were you consciously realizing that the keeping, the living of the Torah and the, and the fulfilling of it and the keeping of the mitzvot, that they actually had an effect not just on your life, in other words, see, that's the way mo- where most people are operating at. What's in it for me? What's, you know, the will to receive for myself alone? Oh, I'm going to get a reward for it. Or, oh, I'm going to avoid punishment. Okay? This is a very low-level thinking. I'm sorry to say it, but it's low-level. Because there's so much more. We have to have expanded levels of consciousness. Where we begin to see through the fulfillment of the Torah and the mitzvot in our own lives... We're not just affecting ourselves, we're affecting everybody else around us. We're affecting every other human being in in the world. We're affecting all of the universes, all of the angels. We are increasing the level of holiness in the world, which eventually comes to increase the level of godly awareness, eventually comes to uh, bring the light of Hashem into the world. All of those things, it's so important. So this is what it means, living a life of consciousness, through the fulfillment of Torah and mitzvot. And he says, and this is true life, as contrasted to living without the Torah and the mitzvot. Because without the Torah and the mitzvot, he says, such a life is more difficult than death. Thus, he says, the sages have said, wicked people within their lifetime are called dead. When scripture, say, when scripture says, in order that you and your offspring should live, he says, it implies that a life without the Torah not only gives no pleasure to yourself, but it cannot benefit others either. A person cannot even have pleasure from his or her own children, because their lives also are harder than death. And what sort of inheritance is that to pass on to them? Rabbi Eschlag continues, continues and he says, However, one who lives in the consciousness of Torah and mitzvot not only enjoys his or her own life, But he or she is happy to give birth to children to whom they bequeath this good life. And that is the meaning of in order that you and your offspring or you and your seed should live. 
and a person then has additional joy in the life of his or her children as he or she was a prime cause of them and of passing this on. And this is, you know, in the Shema, this is what's so important that you teach this thoroughly to your children. Now we're coming to some difficult things that he's going to talk about on the subject of choosing the best portion. And so just stick with me, okay? Stick with me, and let's work our way through it. Uh, First he says, through what we have said, we can now understand the words of the sages when they explain the meaning of the scripture and thus choose life. Now, he goes to Rashi, uh, uh, Rashi's commentary on, on that verse, which is uh, in Devarim 30 and verse 19. And that in Rashi's commentary is, like, is this. I teach you that you should choose the portion of life. This is like the case of a man saying to his son, Choose the best portion of my inheritance. But then the man goes even further. In himself, he stands the son over the best part of the inheritance, saying, This is the part that you should choose. And we're still in Rashi's comment. Concerning this, the psalmist says, God, (laughs) that's the best part, by the way, in case we haven't figured that out. God is the portion of my inheritance and cup, and you support my lot. That's from Psalm 16 and verse 5. In other words, Rashi concludes, You have put my hands on the best part of the inheritance, saying, Take this part for yourself. Okay? Take this part for yourself. Now comes Rabbi Ashlag's. So we, I just put on the board just real quickly, Rashi on Devarim 30, 19. But now here's Rabbi Ashlag's comment. All of that, all of this seems very odd. <laughs> he always he he always cracks me up because he is he he looks at uh, he looks in through the letters and at the spaces between the letters and finds things that I never see. Uh, so he says all of this this in other words this whole comment of Rashi about choosing life and what Rashi says that means he said that seems very odd. Now, of course, he's not going to disagree with Rashi, but he's just saying, why would he explain it this way? Because he says, on the one hand, the scripture says, choose life. And that surely means that a person should choose for himself or for herself. But now, the sages are saying that God himself stands the person over the best part of the inheritance, in which case, he says, there seems to be no free choice here. Where is the person's free choice? Not only that, but they go on to say that God himself places the person's hand on the good, the best portion of the, of the inheritance. He says, and this is all very surprising, because if that is the case, then here's the question. Where is the person's free choice? Now, he says, we need to understand, though, that the teaching of the sages here, uh, or, or he says, we need to understand the sages' teaching in this case, because it is, in fact, completely true. God himself does place the hand of the person on the best portion in life by giving him or her a life of contentment and delight right within this material life that is filled with pain and suffering and empty of all content. Now, if we remember the condition of Rabbi Ashlag, who lived in poverty, this great giant, Torah scholar, this Gedolim, uh, uh, one of the Gedolim of his generation, and yet he, and yet he often didn't have anything to eat. 
he often didn't have uh, clothes. <laughs> Uh, he often uh, uh, couldn't support his family. And yet, listen to what he says. God himself does place the hand of the person on the best portion in life by giving him or her a life of contentment and delight right within a material life that is filled with pain and suffering and empty of all content. Now, he says, now, of course, a person will try to escape and to run away from that life because that life is harder than death. And they'll try to do it the moment that he or she sees for themselves. He says, even if only like one peeping through a lattice, some place of tranquility to escape to. Then he makes the statement, there is no greater direction of a person's choice on the part of God than this. So, he says, the matter of man's free choice actually, oops, hold on, I keep forgetting to change screens. The matter of man's free choice, he says, actually involves only the question of to what extent a person is prepared to strengthen himself or herself. Now, we do know, and we have to understand, the sages do teach us, I'm just going to add this in, it's not in Rabbi Ashkelon's commentary, but the sages do teach us that really the only free will and free choices that we have as, as human beings in this life is whether or not to do the mitzvot. Whether or not we will take God's advice, as the Zohar calls the commandments, whether or not we'll take his advice. And they, ma and they make such statements as, you know, everything is in the hands of heaven, except what? Except the fear of heaven. And, uh, and that's saying exactly the same thing. We have to make the choice that we want the Torah. We have to choose Torah. We have to choose that way of life. We have to choose all of that. And, but when we make that choice, God himself, <laughs> Rabbi Ashlag is saying, he is trying his best to put our hands on the very best part. So now he says the matter of a man's free choice, it only involves the question of to what extent a person is prepared to strengthen himself or herself in order to be able to grasp that good part. That's, that's what he's trying to begin to tell us here. Then he says, it is certain that a great deal of work and effort, and he's going to talk to us about this a lot later on in, in this, uh, this introduction. A great deal of work and effort is involved until a person can purify his or her will to receive for themselves and thus come to fulfill Torah and mitzvot in the right way, in the correct way. And what way is that? He says that is not for the sake of obtaining benefit for himself or herself, but only for the purpose of giving pleasure to the Creator. And this is called Torah for its own sake. Now we have a definition. Talmud Torah Lishma. Those of you who are Hebrew students, and if you ever read the sages in Hebrew, uh, or even in Aramaic, uh, but you'll find this statement among the sages many, many times. It's everywhere. Talmud Torah Lishma. To learn Torah for its own sake. Unfortunately, they don't really tell us what that is, because it's an understood thing. Once again, we're talking about the language of the branches here. So now Rabbi Ashlag is actually telling us what it means. This is called Torah for its own sake. It means not for the sake of obtaining benefit for me, not for a reward that I'm going to give out of it, get out of it, or a punishment that I'm going to avoid, or not that so people will think, oh, what a smart person, or what a Torah scholar, or any of those things, or not so that God will bless me. But it's only to give pleasure to the Creator, only to make Him happy, because He is pleased when we just study Torah. That's the idea. 
He says, only in this way can the person come to merit the life of happiness and pleasantness which accompanies the fulfillment of Torah. Now, he has already told us a whole lot here. A whole, whole lot. Now he wants to begin to talk to us about this purifying his or her will to receive for themselves or for ourselves alone. Okay, how does that how does that work? So he begins to tell us. Now this is the hard part, but once again, I'm going to tell you, don't stress out about this, okay? Don't stress out about it at all because he is going to to uh it will be okay. That's what I'm trying to say without giving everything away right now. He says, Before a person has come to this stage of purification, free choice is still operative, and he or she can decide to what degree they will commit themselves to the work of purification. And we still have free choice in that matter up until the time it's completed. But he says, Use all manner of means and strategies in order to do everything in your power to complete this work of purification, so that you will not stumble and that you will not fall under the burden of the work and the effort in the middle of the journey, God forbid. So he is trying to give us a pep talk here, saying it may sound hard, what we're going to explain sounds hard, it may even sound impossible, but it's so important that you should use every means at your disposal to try to to try to come to it. Now he wants to begin to talk to us about those means. Okay. Now, hold on. Let's. There we go. Okay. He goes to the Mishnah. He says, "From what we have explained so far, we can understand the words of the rabbis, which are quoted in the Mishnah." Now, this is this is a tough saying. Okay. So don't tune me out after I say this saying, because we, it, it'll be okay. In the Mishnah it says, this is the way of Torah. You should eat bread with salt. You should drink water in strict measure. You should sleep upon the earth and live a life of suffering. And you should labor in Torah. And if you act in this way, you will be happy and it will be well for you. You will be happy in this world, and it will be well for you in the world to come. Now, Rabbi Ashlag says, you might ask concerning this passage, why is the Torah different from the other wisdoms of the world, which can be acquired without self-denial or ascetic practices, or the prerequisite of living a life of suffering? Effort alone, he says, is certainly sufficient to acquire the wisdoms of the world. But it seems that even if we were to labor hard in the Torah, this would not be sufficient to acquire it without all of these acts of self-denial, without all of these this this suffering of eating eating only bread and salt and and drinking only small amounts of water, all of these things. He says the latter part of the of the quotation from the from the Mishnah, he says, is even more astounding or astonishing when the rabbis say in the end. If you do so, if you live this kind of life of suffering, you will be happy in this world. And it will be well for you in the world to come. He says, it's reasonable to suppose that it might be good for me in the world to come. In other words, where I would get some, would certainly get some level of reward for all of that. So it might be good for me in the world to come. But how can I say I am happy in this world while I am afflicting myself? He says, over food and drink and sleep. And I am living a life of great suffering. 
How can the rabbi say, say about such a life, happier you in this world? He, he's right. Rabbi Ashlog's right on the money. This would be certainly my question here. Of course, I would be, you know, at first glance, I would try to read over that and, and, and just not come back to that one because that one's too tough. But really, let's be honest and good students and jump in it just like Rabbi Ashlog is. He says, how can they say? How can the sages say about such a life, happier you in this world? Can such a life be called happy? He says, in the context of what we usually understand as happiness? However, however, Rabbi Ashlag is one of his most favorite words. However, he says, according to what we have already explained, the correct way to be involved in Torah and mitzvot in the strictest sense is with the intention of giving pleasure to one's creator without gaining pleasure through satisfying even one's own needs. It is only a poss- he says it, it is only possible to come to this through great work and huge effort in purifying the body. Now, I understand. I'm, you know, don't like I, I, I warned you about this before we started. What is this whole thing anyway? What is this 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 whole thing about what is to purify the body? Because it's from the body that the will to receive for oneself alone comes from. That's where it comes from. And if you know, if you go into the lives of many of the Hasidic uh, Rebbe's, like Rebbe Nachman of Breslov, like Rebbe Levi Yitzhak of Berdichev, uh, even the Baal Shem Tov, many of them, many of them, they talk about their their eating habits and their drinking habits, and their sleeping habits, and and all of these things. And through certain periods of their life, now they didn't do it forever, not all of them, some of them did, but through certain periods of their life, they restrained their self in eating, and in drinking, even water, and in sleeping, and in the comforts and the in the needs of their own body, what is going on there? Because because none of them actually talk about uh, or talk about it being like a doctrine that that uh, you have to uh, afflict yourself or that you have to make yourself suffer or you have to deny deny yourself food or drink or any of those things. So what is going on with them? Because it's from the body that the will to receive for oneself alone operates. So it's very easy for us to say, oh, wow, you know, my will to receive for oneself alone, I've got that under control. I've absolutely got that under control because I'm always checking myself, you know, oh, oh, say when it comes to to doing a mitzvah, to doing a mitzvah, uh, a commandment, I'm checking myself and making sure that my motivation for it is not so I'm going to get something out of it or anything. But then I sit down to eat and, and, you know, and I eat uh, totally unrestrained. And what is that going on? What's going on there? Actually, you're just feeding your will to receive for yourself alone. So the will to receive for oneself alone, because it's connected to the body, it enters into everything that we do in this body. And this is the idea. Now, I know this sounds extremely difficult, but it is the correct way, okay? And it, and it is a level of becoming a, a tzaddik gamul, a completed tzaddik which we're going to talk about this thing also. There's the sense of a complete tzaddik who has completely killed his evil inclination. Then there is a benoni, an in-between person, which most of us are, when some days we might reach that level and the next day we might not. Uh, in other words, we have, it hasn't become a permanent thing yet. 
for us. But anyway, don't let any of that stress you out in any shape, form, or fashion. Let's just go slowly with him and figure it out as we go. So he says the first tactic, and this is a tactic. He says the first tactic is, uh, I'm uploading very slowly tonight, I'm not sure why. Maybe I didn't click it, let's see. There we go, the first tactic, he says, is to accustom oneself not to receive anything at all for one's own pleasure, even when dealing with matters that are permitted and necessary for one's bodily needs, such as eating, drinking, sleeping, and other essential requirements. And in such a way, a person disassociates himself or herself from any accompanying pleasure, even when dealing with only what is necessary, and just partakes of them to the minimum degree for the purpose of keeping body and soul together. And he says, and by the way, whether we want to admit it or not, that is literally living a life of suffering when you're doing that. Because you're not, <laughs> you're, you're forcing yourself to be completely disassociated from your will to receive for yourself alone. Even in the area of eating, drinking, sleeping, everything. Now the concept of disassociation is also something that he's going to talk about later on. Saying that this is a tactic where if we have a... If we have a problem, uh, a, which literally would be a sin, a, pro a problem with a sin, a particular sin or a particular area of sin in our lives, he says then our first tactic must be, or, or it's, it's, it's actually not even sin. It's where we, are, where we are abusing something, even if it's something that's permitted, okay? We're going over and beyond. In other words, we're completely indulging our will to, to receive for ourselves alone in that area. And completely overindulging in it, even to the point of where it may become a sin. And he says our, our first tactic should always have to do with the concept of disassociation. In other words, to completely disassociate yourself with that until you come to a place of purification. And then you can pick it back up. Because now you know how to, how to use whatever that area of life is. And you know how to use it in the, in the correct way, is what he is trying to say. Okay? Then he says, once a person has already accustomed himself or herself to this, and he or she no longer has any more will to receive pleasure for oneself alone within the body, then it becomes possible for him or for her from this time on to practice Torah and to fulfill the mitzvot only with the intention of giving pleasure to the Creator and not at all in order to give pleasure to oneself. And when the person is worthy of this, he says then, <coughs> excuse me, sorry, when the person is worthy of this, then he or she merits to taste a happy life filled with all goodness and pleasure. Meaning that Hashem, you've purified the will to receive for yourself alone. And Hashem now takes your hands and he takes free choice away from you. And now he takes your hands and puts it on the best part of the inheritance, the best part of the portion. And uh, so merits to taste a happy life filled with all goodness and pleasure without any defect of suffering at all. And that happy life becomes manifest through the practice of Torah and mitzvot for its own self. Now I'm going to try to I'm going to try to get to a point for us to cut off here. So I'm just I'm just going to uh, directly read from Rabbi Ashlag. As Rabbi Meir says, oh listen to this quote, and I didn't have room to put it all on the on the screen, so you'll have to listen to the entire quote right now from Rabbi Meir. Whoever labels in labors in Torah for its own sake, merits many things. And not only that, but the whole world is indebted to him. By the way, Rabbi Meir is 
describing what a tzaddik gamul, a completed tzaddik is here. The whole world is indebted to him. He is called friend, beloved, a lover of God, a lover of mankind. Humility enclothes such a person, as does reverence. And he is fit to be a tzaddik. He is fit to be righteous and pious and honest and faithful. It keeps him far from sin and draws him near to purity. And through him, the world can benefit from counsel and sound knowledge and understanding and strength. As it is said, and he quotes from Proverbs 8.14, Counsel is mine and sound knowledge. Understanding is mine. Strength is mine. It gives him sovereignty and governance and discerning judgment. And the secrets of the Torah are revealed to him. And he becomes like a flowing fountain that never stops, like a river that increases its flow. He is modest, he is long-suffering, forgiving of insult, and he is magnified by Torah, and he is exalted above all things. And Rabbi Ashlag says, it is of such a person that Rabbi Meir describes that scripture speaks when it says, Psalm 34, 9, taste and see that God is good. One who tastes the taste of the true practice of Torah and mitzvot for its own sake, remember what that means, in order to please Hashem, merits and sees for himself or for herself that the intention of creation is only to benefit God's creatures and it is in the nature of the good one to do good. Such people are happy, they are joyful throughout all the years that Hashem grants to them and they find the world a happy place to be in. Wow, he just described for us, <coughs> he just described for us the goal, the goal that we have. That, that's, that, that's part of our mission, to be on this path, the way of the Torah, coming to this, this level. Now he says we can begin to understand the two sides of the coin. Let's, let me check the time real quick. We have, uh, let's, let's try to go for another five minutes and I think we'll be through. Maybe, maybe, maybe we'll take the whole ten, I don't know, we'll see. Now he says you can understand the two sides of the coin concerning involvement with Torah and mitzvot. One side is the way of Torah, he says, and the way of Torah means the great preparation that a person needs in order to purify the will to receive for oneself alone before he or she can merit to truly fulfill Torah and mitzvot according to the essence of them. During that preparatory period, he says, a person has no alternative but to practice Torah and mitzvot not purely for its own sake, but mixing his or her own self-interest into the spiritual practice. There's no alternative to that. And because the person has yet to sufficiently purify and cleanse the body from the will to receive those pleasures which belong to the vanities of this world. During this period, the person has to live a life of suffering. And they have to labor in Torah, as described by the, by the passage in the Mishnah that we looked at. Only when the person has finished and perfected the way of Torah and purified the body, making it fit to fulfill Torah and mitzvot for its own sake, in order to give pleasure to the Creator, does he or she come to the other side of the coin. And that other side is a life of delight and great tranquility. And this life of delight and great tranquility is the expression of the purpose of creation, which is Hashem's desire to give good to His creatures. In other words, he says, the happiest possible life in this world and in the world to come.
Now, again, don't despair when we're together again, even though it'll be a couple of weeks, um, not, not until uh, we have to skip next week. But uh, he is going to show us that it is, all of this is available for us. And it's even available without actually having to do all of those things that the Mishnah says that we have to do. Okay? So don't despair. Now he said, I'm just trying to find a place to end this where we can end it on an absolute right note. He says, now we have clearly explained the major distinction that lies actually between the wisdom of the Torah and that of the other wisdoms of the world. Their attainment of the other wisdoms, he says, does not benefit our life in this world at all, as they cannot even begin to recompense us for the sufferings and the pains that we endure throughout our lives. The other intellectual wisdoms do not require the transformation of anything, the transformation of our will to receive for ourselves alone. But the Torah does. Regarding them, it is enough simply to work for them in order to acquire them. Just as we do for any other acquisition, he says, of this world, which is acquired through labor and effort. However, this is not true of the practice of Torah and mitzvot. The whole purpose of Torah and mitzvot is to qualify a person so that he or she will be fitting to receive all the good that is inherent in the intention of creation, which is to do good to God's creatures. Now we know for sure that will happen. Hashem will work that out in the world to come. Rabbi Ashlag is telling us it's available also right now. How willing are we? How, how much do we want to commit to this effort? He says, The Torah thus requires the purification of the will to receive for oneself alone in order that a person should be fit to receive this divine good. Now he says, This also actually... Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about this, and then we'll stop. This also fits very well, he says, with the above text, where it says, if you do so, you will be happy in this world. The language here is very precise. As we are going to, Rabbi Ashlag is going to teach us, the language of the sages is always precise, teaching us that the happy life of this world is actually only available to someone who has completed the way of Torah. The ascetic practices or the self-denial practices concerning eating, drinking, sleeping, and the life of suffering mentioned here are only relevant during the time of the pathway of Torah. Meaning, just to come to that level of purification. After that, they're not even relevant. Thus the sages said with great precision, this is the way of Torah. After a person has completed this way of Torah, which is not for its own sake, through this life of suffering and self-denial, then the text then concludes, You will be happy in this world, for you will merit the happiness and the goodness that is intended by creation in this life, in this life. And all the world will be worthwhile for you, both this world and even more so, he says, the world to come. That's a very good place for us to stop this evening. We, we are going to look because he is going to begin to also tell us by the way, he is, we're going to move from the great degree, this hardness that we talked about of the sages of the Mishnah tonight. Now he's going to move because we have moved to souls who are not as accomplished as they are, who are on a level lower level than they are to the Gemara, the commentary on the Mishnah. So we're going to move to the Gemara, which is going to teach us an even easier way for us to do this, if we can say that. It's going to be hard. Because we have to deny our will to receive for ourselves alone. 
The only way that can be done is through Torah. The only way it can be done is through the mitzvot. So, and through changing the way we think. It actually can't be done until we change the way we think. So hopefully that's what we're trying to do. And we'll do it together. I thank you so much that you're dedicated to the Torah, that you're dedicated to Hashem, that you love Him, and because you love Him, you want to please Him. And I, I for one, appreciate you very, very much. Okay, so we'll end there with Rabbi Ashlag tonight. In two weeks, uh, not next Wednesday, but the Wednesday after that, we'll pick it back up again, and we'll and we'll continue in our in this wonderful study with him. And I I want to thank you very much for letting me study with you. Uh, this is this does me probably more good than it does you to to go over this again and again. Although I've taught Rabbi Ashlag for a long time, I always see new things in him, and it always does me so much and picks me up <laughs> uh, from the dirt so much to study with him again and again. And uh, so I thank you very, very much that uh, that you love Hashem and His Torah. And uh, we'll walk together on this path, and, and, and it will be a wonderful thing. Okay, Toda Rabbah, and uh, I will see you in a couple of weeks. And thank you so much again and again. Toda Rabbah. Shalom, Uvraka, peace and a blessing to each and every one of you. Bye-bye.